Hello, and welcome to a Planet Killer episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today, we're reviewing 2021's Don't Look Up. We'll jump into our five-point inspection with Whack-A-Mole, Fatburner, a.k.a. Commitment Issues, Opening Credits, Cosplay, and Trailerific. But before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. Hollywood Chop Shop, this is Brett. Hey, Adam, yeah, yeah let me grab your uncle. Uh, one second. Uh, hey, Travis, your nephew is on the phone for you. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, hello, hey, Adam? Hey, what's going on, buddy? No, no, I don't have TikTok. I mean, I just, I don't, I'm 30, what does it matter? No. Adam, we've gone through this before. <clears throat> no, the engine's too big. No, you, you can't fit a Corvette engine into your Miata. I don't know how the kid on TikTok did it. it it's probably not even drivable. No, I don't think they're better mechanics than me. Listen, listen, listen. Sometimes we need to just be able to say things to one another. We need to hear things. So hear me now. Let's establish once again, even if I wanted to do all the work to engine swap your Miata, and even if you actually had the money to pay me to do it, your father would kill me, then he would kill you. Wait, your your father, he changed his mind? He's going to give you the money to get it done? Well, thank God I'm the level-headed one because I'm still not going to do it. That car would be a death trap with that much power. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, okay. You're gonna take it to the, the shop across the street. That's how it is. That's that's loyalty. Well, I hope you're fucking lying. But if you're not, look, I'm just trying to be a responsible uncle here, and I hope to God, I hope to God that your father knows what he's doing and he's got all this taken care of. But the truth is, the truth is, I think you and your father have lost your fucking minds, and I think Brett and I are gonna review. Don't look up. discovering a planet-killing comet is on a collision course with Earth, Dr. Randall Mindy and his assistant Kate Dibioski embark on a crusade to save the world. After failing to impress a megalomaniac occupying the White House, the team leaks the information and starts a campaign to save the Earth from itself. It's a battle against the government, corporations bent on exploiting the disaster, and at times their own egos. But most importantly, it's a battle against time. Alrighty, Travis, before we jump into five points, I would love to get your quick diagnostic of this movie. Well, I don't know how meta and how political we want to get in this podcast, so maybe we won't at all, but I have to lead with this. I always roll my eyes when, you know, liberal Hollywood's idea on fixing something is to just make a $75 million movie that pays Leo 30 million and Jennifer Lawrence 25 million to kind of just get on their soapbox. Like I, I like the message of this movie. I mean, how could you not if you're a citizen of earth, but, uh, 
it's a little bit heavy handed for me. And again, it's hard for me to stop thinking about, you know, when Leonardo DiCaprio has to fly to Khan, I don't think he's flying commercial. So, well, just had to get that meta piece out of the way because it always makes me roll my eyes. Yeah, and I have to say, I don't exactly know who the audience of this movie was because obviously the satire and the metaphor, like this is about climate change, right? Disguised as a disaster movie with a comet. But my thing is like, you're not subvertently like the people you you claim aren't looking at the like the environment aren't going to watch this movie and be like oh my god this comet is just like you know global warming i get it now so i don't understand why you're trying to hide a global warming movie in a disaster comet movie just make a global warming movie like i don't, i don't get that part but um yeah for sure it was one of those things where like at a certain point you think you're smarter than everybody in the room so are you making this movie for for your for you know the, the the choir or are you trying to make this movie to to change other people's minds and i'm not quite sure no it, it to me it, it feels like a circle jerk mm-hmm. like the people that need to see this movie they see it coming a mile away they're just not going to watch it right and the people who watch it and enjoy it are the people who already accept climate change and already do their part to try to combat it. And you can just kind of laugh at parties about the movie that you made is, is the feeling I get. Absolutely. So with that, I, uh, we can go ahead and get into five points. So was there any particular one you wanted to start with? Uh, no, cause as I was telling you off air and as we've discussed on previous podcasts, we don't do a ton of prep, together we don't we do our individual prep but we don't necessarily know what these five points are other than opening credits i i'm not sure where you're going so i'll let you steer the ship all right so let's start with let's start with fat burner slash commitment issues um because i feel like it's one of those things that we talk about a lot on this show and that is the length of a movie uh, this movie came in at what two and a half hours long. Yeah, two hours thirty four minutes. I want to say, uh, way too long. And a lot of my fat burner slash commitment issues came from. I think there was a lot of fat in this movie that didn't need to be there, and a large portion of that was the whole uh, Randall Mindy cheating on his wife subplot. I did not think made a whole lot of sense. It didn't add to his character. I don't think it added to the movie. I just, I didn't understand why that needed to be in the movie whatsoever. And I don't know what your opinion on it. I just, I thought it was so unnecessary. And it actually, what it wound up doing to me is actually shined a light on the character I liked the most in this movie and wanted to know more about was actually the anchor woman, not any of the other people. Like when they do the pillow talk and she talks about her history, I'm like, I want to know way more about her than I do about any of the other characters in this fucking movie. Yeah, I I understand why it's in there. You know, the the guy who's purely about the science kind of temporarily getting corrupted by the the glitz of Hollywood. But it it hurts the movie especially at the end because as heartfelt as the last dinner scene is in this movie, it it kind of feels like Randall doesn't necessarily deserve it. Right. And, and I think that takes away from the power of the scene because, I mean, if Randall knows a 
Earth-killing comet is coming to Earth, and one of the last things he wants to do is have an affair. It makes Randall Mindy very unlikable, and it just it hurts what is otherwise the most powerful part of this movie. Oh, and I, I totally agree. Like, that's not brought up in any one of the specific five points, but the end of this movie is is by far, to me, the best. Like, the, the whole scene with them sitting around, it was another one of those things that were like, to get to that point, I thought there was a, it was very weird because even like Timothy Chalamont as Yule in the movie, I I didn't understand where he got brought in. Like a lot of this felt like there was there was extra pieces tacked on so that we could get to that end scene. Like almost they knew how they were going to end the movie with the world ending. There was going to be heartfelt because it was going to be everybody around a table, you know, trying to share the a last moment of of beauty with each other before it all comes to an end. And then trying to reverse engineer how we get to that point. Like they knew what actors, what relationships they were going to have. And then that's why to me it was, it was just very weird how we got there as opposed to, because I just, I didn't, I thought there was a lot of, of extra fluff in this movie that didn't need to be there that could have really pinpointed this movie into, into something much more digestible and, and more enjoyable to watch. Yeah. And to your point about fat burner, we talked about on the King of Satin Island podcast, when your runtime is too long and there's too much fat on the steak, it, it makes for a lesser, you know, the, the good stuff has less impact because it's surrounded by more bullshit. Um, yep. So, yeah, if this movie was a tight two hours and the last 20 minutes is heartfelt, it's going to have a lot more impact. Because uh, I'll be honest, I watched this movie over two nights. Uh, because the I, first half to me was almost insufferable at times because it's just a joke <laughs> a minute and I didn't find too many of them funny. Uh, I was going to actually say, I'm like, it's funny you bring that up because I remember two and a half hour long movie at the 30 minute mark. I was looking at my my phone being like, oh, my God, I'm only 30 minutes into this. And then at the hour mark, I was like, holy shit, there's still an hour and a half left of this movie. Like it. Yes. The the first half of it, I thought dragged to that point. The last hour and a half, I did not find myself trying to look at a clock and figuring out what was going on. But the, I guess all of the setup just takes so long that I didn't find this movie very funny at all. I mean, I might have had a couple little chuckles and that'll kind of lead into trailerific because I think some of the the best comedic moments were ruined for me um, in the trailer for this. Because that was this was one of those movies I sent you a link and said, hey, I think we should watch this because the trailer like it had a great like the the music and the score to it the way the trailer was cut the way they cut a lot of the jokes in the trailer i was like i think this is gonna be like a star-studded i think this is gonna be a fantastic movie um but i thought the delivery mechanism in the trailer was actually funnier than what it was in the movie and it ruined some of those jokes like jonah hill i think was by far the funniest and had the most the best comedic performance in the movie but a lot of his jokes i think were actually better when they were cut to the trailer than when you actually saw them in the scene that they were filmed in. Agree on both parts. I think Jonah Hill, the few actual laugh out loud moments I had, which albeit was just a chuckle, like you said, they were almost always him, but it almost always felt like Adam McKay was just like, Hey, here's what's supposed to happen in the scene. We'll do it five, ten times, make five, ten different jokes, and we'll use the best one. It doesn't feel like it's a piece of the narrative. Yeah, I was going to say, it definitely feels like it's just, I'm laughing at Jonah Hill, because he's legitimately a funny person. 
And it's just, yeah, to your point, it's that was they allowed him to do improv. And I'm just laughing because I enjoy Jonah Hill and his interaction with um, Jennifer Lawrence. Like, to me, they had the the best comedic chemistry in the movie whenever those two were kind of going at it. You're talking about the boy with the dragon tattoo? (laughs) Or even... To that point, he makes the comment about, I'm the one who put the bag on your head because I just thought it was funny. The whole time he's talking about, like, you know, it's just funny. I'm like, but it wasn't funny. Like, as the audience, I didn't find that scene funny at all. And then now you're only putting more attention to the fact that I didn't laugh at that at all. And that was supposed to be a joke that they put the bag over her head. God, I had that exact same thought. I was like, this is making Jonah Hill unlikable, but not in the way that the director intended. Yeah. Although I will say I liked how the movie kept some of the gags running, uh, including the bag over the head. I thought when DiCaprio had the bag over his head and Kate Blanchett visits him in the mm. back of the car and he's like, you still there? <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, but yeah, the initial bag over the head joke was just not funny at all. It's hard to fuck up a callback, though. I mean, it, personally, for me, it's hard. Like callback jokes are probably one of my favorite kind, just because of the the level of commitment to it. I need to ask you Which something. The snacks at the White House, the then s- I assumed you loved that. I did, but here's my thing, Travis. I don't know if I blinked or I did. Did they ever resolve why he took the snacks, or was it just one of those things where they just she just kept bringing it up? Did we ever get resolution on why he did it? Uh, no, the, the, the movie does not definitively give okay. you any answer. It just was, serves as a, a series of jokes. I was just making sure. Cause like, I was always waiting for that moment where like, she was going to get to confront him or there was going to be uh, some scene offhand where he's talking to somebody else about it. I'm like, I don't know if I somehow missed that, but okay, good. I'm just glad I didn't. But, um, you know, to, to round out trailerific, this is really, I just wanted to talk a little commentary about Hollywood and the entertainment industry as a whole like it's amazing how well people can cut a movie into a trailer that makes it look a completely different than what the movie actually is and just makes it look insanely entertaining and not to bring up another movie because I haven't seen it to to actually test my theory but I'm like that's why I wasn't interested in a movie like the Eternals because the Eternals trailer didn't managed to get my attention at all in a movie like this where trailerific made me I was like I'm gonna wind up loving this movie and wound up leaving it disappointed i'm like it's very surprising to me again how the the people cutting these trailers are phenomenal because like i said it it was to me almost a completely different tone of a movie from the trailer from what we actually got yeah and again not to bring up movies that neither of us have seen but i'm going to do exactly that i'm kind of having the same feelings with the new um robert pattinson batman because mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's been two to three trailers at this point, and I feel like the tone has been a little bit different in each one. Like some of the trailers I really love, some of them I'm like, I don't care to see this, but I'm like, ultimately, this is the same movie. I'm just falling prey to these, you know, shops who do these trailers. Yeah, the the marketing uh, they algorithm. Can, yeah, they can make it appear to be whatever they want. Yeah, it's, it's the marketing algorithm. Okay, we need people who fit into this category to want to watch this movie. All right, that's what trailer number three is going to be, you know, geared towards. I'm like, and as just a, a general lover of, of movies, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to see now. Like, I'm confused because I've watched all three trailers. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why more and more I try to avoid trailers if I can. Sometimes I'm just too excited by a movie I can't avoid it. But for the most mm-hmm. part, I, I don't watch nearly the amount that I used to. Yep. 
And we touched on tone here. So I think, again, beautiful transition here, which I don't know if it's a great transition if I have to announce it, but um, the opening credits, I wanted to bring some some light to those because I actually really enjoyed the opening credits um, with the typography, even though some of it, the spacing was a little wonky and weird. But the the score, both at the beginning and the end of the movie, over the opening and closing credits, was not to me the the tone of the movie we got as a whole and that disappointed me because the opening and closing credits is what i thought i was going to be getting and what i really wanted this movie to be like yes there's it's a satire but there's a certain level of i don't want to say whimsical but it's a little bit more lighthearted. there's more fun to it whereas i didn't think that this movie was as fun as i thought it was gonna wind up being like i knew it was gonna be have some serious notes because again we're talking about you know world ending and stuff like that but it just again it didn't it never quite hit those notes for me yeah i enjoyed the credits both opening and closing in their own regard but i think what you're kind of circling here and and part of the reason the comedy didn't work either I know this is supposed to be a satire, but a lot of these jokes, I'm just like, this is just observational comedy. This is just the world we live in, and I don't need to see a two and a half hour movie to show me some of this stuff. You know, the viral challenges. Again, I'm alive in 2021 and 2022. I've I've seen this. Mm-hmm. So like the the world right now is just so mean spirited. It's hard to make a whimsical satire of it, in my opinion. Yeah, and that could very much be the case. But then my thing is, <laughs> don't have your opening credits and closing credits like you book into the movie and to- like completely totally different. You know, it, it, to me, and again, it, it's just a weird thing because I went into the movie watch after you know we have the whole setup basically of them finding the comet and all that then we have these opening credits and i'm like again that was was like okay we were very serious about the opening here now we've got the credits and now we're going to kind of ease into you know an anchorman level comedy right because then it's it's the same director writer as anchorman so i'm thinking we're gonna have like anchorman style comedy coming up now especially after these opening credits nope don't get any of that and then we close out the movie with the same credits, and it just reminds me of like, oh yeah, that's what I thought I was getting at the beginning of this movie, and didn't. So it just again, it's one of those like very strange to me that that's the tone you would take with with the the bookends of this movie. Yeah, and I mean, you want to talk about tonal whiplash? Just a few minutes after that dinner scene that we thought was the best and, and the most powerful of the movie, you've got the implication at least until mid credits that not only does the planet end, but the worst people escape it. But then we're also getting this upbeat music and, and colorful credits seconds after watching earth end on, on film at least. Yeah. Well, and even so I had to message you because in doing research for this movie, uh, one of the the trivia things was, oh, there's a mid and an end credit scene, and I was like, oh shit, I turned the movie off too soon, too soon to get either of those. So I had to message you to make sure you had actually watched them because, at that point, I didn't know that there was a, a mid and end credit because I ended as soon as the end credit started to roll, I was I was done with the movie. Um, <laughs> so I went back and actually I tried to find it on YouTube and couldn't. So I had to actually go back into Netflix and rewatch the very end of the movie. But, again, tonally, 
the mid and end credit scenes are what I expected the majority of the movie to be. That tone of comedy and stuff like that, which we didn't really get. Because even at the very end, when she gets attacked by the monster and he goes, I believe that was a Bronkledockle or whatever the fuck the thing is. And like the colorfulness of the planet and all of, you know, I thought it was an interesting, I wasn't sure if it was a commentary or not that was intentional, but most of the people on the ship that are going to rebuild society are all old fucking assholes. And I'm like, yeah, they're definitely going to be the ones that are going to be doing any kind of labor or anything to rebuild a planet as all these, you know, uh, you know, white hair, blue hair motherfuckers. But, um, yeah, I just, and the saturation of the new planet that they land on, I just, I thought it was very interesting. Again, tonal whiplash. That's what what happened here, you know? Yeah, and you just kind of mentioned the character. The, the guy who's supposed to be Elon Musk slash Mark Zuckerberg. Slash Steve Jobs slash, yeah, in, any yeah. of those, those, yeah, tech assholes. What the fuck is that performance? I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what he was supposed to be. Like, I almost like, do you remember Stuart from Mad TV? Look what I can do. Like, yes, I, th- yes. I thought he was trying to, like, channel that. Like, is he supposed to be kind of, like, childlike? But, at this, like, I, I, yeah, I have no idea. This very soft-spoken. Yeah, I've, it was very, very... And again, I think that was one of those like, oh, it's supposed to be funny. This character's supposed to be... Look how funny he is. It's like, he's just weird. Yeah, no, he, there was not a single scene involving him that I found funny, and he was just distracting to me. And I, this kind of leads into my five points, so I want to make sure I, I, get, I give you room before I go any further. No, yeah, if we want to, we'll, we'll do Whack-A-Mole last, so let's go ahead and ro- uh, roll into to cosplay here. So, Mark Rylance, he's the guy that plays the, the tech mogul, mm-hmm. did not feel like a real person at all even though he's, we know like the five people he's molded after his hair is terrible. Same with Jennifer Lawrence. It, it feels like the only way, the only reason they gave her that appearance was so that he could, so Jonah Hill could make the dragon tattoo joke. Because other than that, it looks like bad cosplay. I, like I it's clearly a wig. Mm-hmm. Well, um, DiCaprio's it's the classic, let's make a, a beautiful, Hollywood star a little bit, you know, disheveled and overweight and sweaty. Mm-hmm. Um, I can keep going, but I want to give you some room based upon what I've said though so far. Yeah, and I agree. Like, I I can understand a little bit of Mark Rylance's Peter Isherwell, I think was his character. And yeah. I, th- I think that it's supposed to be like he's robotic and he's unhuman. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt with that one. The DiCaprio, I totally agree. Let's try and make someone beautiful look what they consider to be average, you know, or, or yeah. what would a nerd look like? Jennifer Lawrence, I immediately couldn't tell if they were trying to make a joke or a statement with her when they her first scene is her rapping Wu-Tang Clan. And I'm like... Is this supposed to be a joke or not? Like, I can't tell if her rapping you Wu Tang Clan is is that supposed to be something that I resonate or connect with? What am I supposed? Am I supposed to be like, oh, she's kind of against the grain as a character? Are we talking about, oh, she's a millennial? Like, again, was this supposed to be a joke that you've got this white woman rapping Wu Tang Clan? Because it's not, again, comedy is about the unexpected, or is it just supposed to be? 
kind of a, a window into who her character is supposed to be. Like, is she supposed to be anti-authority or something like that? Yeah, to your point, I just, I never quite figured out what Kate was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell if it was just, you know, a, a 55-year-old director's idea of what a a 20-something is. A young activist, Or if it was something yeah. more intentional. Yeah, is this is this through his lens what a young activist looks like, you know? She's got to right. have the the avant-garde haircut and, you know, the, you know, when Jonah Not Hill makes the comment. two nose piercings. The nose piercings when Jonah Hill makes the comment, like, thanks for dressing up. You know, she doesn't ha- she doesn't dress up to go to the White House or wear anything there. She's she's authentic herself. And then when I thought when she gives up her Ph.D. program, I'm like, apparently she just goes and works in a supermarket. I'm like, is that how that works that she signed over and saying that her entire like. I guess she wouldn't give a shit because the world's ending. But to that point, then why did she get a job? Like if she knows the world's ending, like sign up for the apartment lease and then wait for them to evict you, knowing that ultimately it's going to end in you know, the world exploding. Like her, her becoming a, a grocery store clerk didn't make a lot of sense to me either. Yeah. And then that's the introduction of Timothy Chalamet, which it feels like he was only inserted so they could do the religion subplot and he could have the prayer at the dinner table. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even know if there's much of a religion subplot so much as it was they needed somebody who would make a decent prayer at the at the table at the end, which again... Yeah, I mean, I guess really it's, it's just a dropped line on the rooftop Yeah, and then one more scene of him doing the prayer. Uh, but even him, he looks like bad cosplay, like that wig that he's wearing. Oh, I'm like, why do you so even bad. have him wearing a wig? Yeah, it's so bad. No idea why and they I mean, decided to do that. What did you that. think about Meryl Streep in this movie? So, she was okay. I didn't think she, and maybe it's just because Meryl Streep is very charismatic and engaging. I didn't think she was ab, as obnoxious as who she was trying. Obviously, she was a an avatar for Trump. Right. And that her son was well, I think Trump and Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think it's 50 50. And maybe that's where it was where I was just like, I was expecting it to go full Trump. And I think because you tried to do a mix of the two, it wound up being kind of half in half out. So I couldn't really commit to to really hate it. She, I mean, she was self-serving. But again, to me, she never came off as a, a extremely obnoxious or even to that point, necessarily dangerous. You know, she she just felt like a caricature as opposed to someone who could actually exist. Yeah, that, that was my exact thought, even. But again, down to the costume and the glasses she wears. And the, I don't the, think satire has to be done to this level where none of it feels real. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, you know, pulling pulling the joke. We decide to give her the tramp stamp at the very end, which again is like, again, that's the tone that I thought this movie was going to do. And we wait till the very end to be like, Oh yeah, look at this gigantic tattoo. She has across her back, you know? And to that point, I'm like, it's not funny to me anymore because I've already had to endure two and a half hours of this. Yeah. And I think there was another dropped line, like by one of the bloggers in those montages where it's just people talking on the internet mm-hmm. who says that at one point, President Orlean said poor people just need to choose better lottery numbers. Yes. I couldn't tell if that with the tramp stamp, did her journey to president start with her winning the lottery? I didn't get if that's what they were trying to say. I think that was, I forget, some politician made some comment like that. And I think it was just them taking shots at some of the just ridiculous stuff that they say. Like, yeah, I think that was a slight modification to an existing like GOP comment. 
And see, again, that's where I think the movie fails, not for one political reason or the other, but it's like, no matter how strong your message is, you still have to actually make a functional movie where I care about some characters. Well, and that's like really Teddy Oglethorpe was probably my favorite character of the movie. Um, he was the the black oh, scientist yes. from the planetary defense or whatever. Yes, I'm glad he got to be in the final scene at the dinner because I agree. He was between him and Kate Blanchett. Those were the two. These were the only two characters I, I cared about at all in the entire movie. And I think because, it's because they're the only two that feel kind of real. I liked um, Dr. Mindy's wife. Yeah. Uh, but she gets little to no screen time. I mean, she's she's so, a yeah, device, right? She's just a vessel so that he can so that Mindy can be uh, was it confronted. Yeah, with throwing the pill bottles mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think Kate Blanchett and then Teddy Oglethorpe. I thought those were the two most 3D realistic characters, and it's it's no wonder that we were kind of drawn to them. Yeah, with with Oglethorpe, I think he just represented just genuine goodness, where like he wasn't corrupted, he stayed true, he earned you know through a little bit of backstory, he earned his position and stuff like that. He you know he is your your compass north in this movie, so it's easy to gravitate towards him. And then, like I said, for Kate Blanchett's character, it's just that, again, that the pillow talk thing, she's so genuine to me, even to the point where she's like, listen, like, we're not going to do this. Like, basically, we're not going to do the fighting thing. All it's going to come down to is Randall decide, are you going to stay and have fun with me or are you going to go back to your wife? Like, I'm not going to do the everything that leads up to that, like that matter of factness. And then more so just. I came from money, but I decided that I didn't want that to define me. So I went and got a bunch of PhDs. And like, again, she built herself up again. To me, that's why she became a more interesting character. I'm like, I want to know more about her background where it's like she decided she was going to make something of herself and not wind up being a result of her history, you know? Yeah, I thought it was going to just be the low hanging fruit of, you know, you're a cheery vapid morning show host and that's going to be like the one note joke with her mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i was surprised at the level of development she got in relatively <laughs> you know little screen time yeah and yeah with with five a five minute dialogue between the two of them so but uh that brings us to whack-a-mole because i ultimately think that the greatest travesty of this movie is that they couldn't focus on one thing. They were so desperate to take shots at everything that they were just, wow, let's make fun of the politicians. Let's make fun of corporations and, and you know, the all the, the tech industry. Let's make fun of the news outlets. Let's make fun of scientists who, who aren't social committed. Social media. Let's make fun of social media. It's like, instead of just being like, no, let's focus in on the, the doomsday deniers. Like, that's what it should have been about. Like, they decide that they're going to cast the widest net possible and we're going to poke a little fun at everybody. And because of that, you don't actually have a really good core message. Like we don't get to the whole point of why the movie is called don't look up until what about an hour and a half or almost two hours in. And then you realize like, Oh, that's the, you know, the political side of it. Like, no, we, you know, in the, the politics and the corporations team up so that they can, you know, try and profit off of all this stuff. And it's like, it took us so long to get to that point. And that's when it starts to try and focus itself a little bit. But again, there's just so much lead up. And I'm, like I said, I, I just think that that's, 
really where this movie falls apart is like they were so desperate to take shots at everybody that no one you know it's instead of giving one person a good right hook you decide to go and flick everyone like no one really feels a sting and no message is really you know actually made yeah i have a lot to say about that because i think that is a hundred percent due to the nature of adam mckay uh spoilers he's going to be my time capsule this week um but yeah, the movie to me didn't really start getting compelling until the plan is revealed of like, hey, there's a bunch of valuable stuff on this comet. We're going to try to break it up and then be able to use those resources. That felt like – I think the best science fiction is fantastic enough where – it's nothing you've ever seen, but it's like, hey, on a long enough timeline, I can absolutely see that being the case. I could 100 percent see at some point down the road, you know, we're out of some precious mineral and, you know, there's an asteroid hurtling towards Earth. I could see us trying to place profit over just doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. But again, that's probably not revealed until like the hour 40 minute mark. Everything else is just kind of spinning its wheels to get to what feels like a realistic message finally. Well, yeah, because I even put in my notes, one of the first things they do, this movie has a lot of weird shots to be, and they're even out of place. Like, I'll come back to my main point, but just so I don't forget, because this is off topic here, but like, when they're in the White House and they're talking about the planet-killing asteroid, like, the, the camera jumps all over that place, and it's like to shots of Meryl Streep with different celebrities and like different things on her desk and all that. I'm like, it's all over the place, and it's so distracting to me. I'm like, does it mean what they're talking about doesn't mean anything? Because none of the shots line up to the conversation they're having. Like, it's just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be focusing on right now. That she's in this position because it seems like of all the connections she has, or, you know, she's a celebrity president or whatever that. And then at the same time, Again, we're supposed they're supposed to be having this dialogue about the, you know, this comet that's going to kill us and all that. But um yeah, I thought that was really weird, but the first shot that I noticed was a weird thing is when they do the bash speaker placement. I thought that that was a legitimate company. I'm like, "Oh, look, we've already got this weird product placement. Is this going to be a Netflix movie thing?" And then later it's revealed that Bash is the name of their the company that they're bashing on. Um and I was like, "Oh shit, that should have been established way earlier." Like, I didn't understand the shot of the Bash speaker until later when we established that that was the corporation that was going to be, you know, trying to profit off of the uh the what is it comet yeah i i didn't have a problem with that necessarily i it's kind of just dropping you into a universe and then you pick up the breadcrumbs along the way i thought when you were talking about all those random shots you know in the meeting about the comet the, the thing that distracted me was president orlean standing in front of the painting depicting the civil war did you notice that in the background Funny, I didn't see that. I just noticed that they constantly kept putting the uh, portrait of Nixon. That that was like the largest presidential portrait that she had was Nixon. So like Nixon was her was supposed to be kind of her, you know, role model. Yeah, I noticed Nixon. Uh, But yeah, she's standing in front of a painting at one point where it's the Union and the Confederacy charging each other across the field with their respective flags flying. And I'm like, God, yeah, hit us over the head a little harder, McKay. Yep. But it is just crazy to me 
I get it. We get back to this point where like the connective tissue and even when they introduced the uh, Ishmael or was it? Yeah. Isherwell. Sorry. The, um, the, the CEO or owner of bash and all that. When they first started introducing them, I don't understand why they're there. And I just think it's a weird way that they structured the movie where a lot of it is they seem to give you all of the pieces. Like they open the the puzzle, right? And they dump it out on the table. And it's not until much later that they actually give you the box so that you can start building it. And I'm like, it's a, to me, it's just a very weird way of doing things narratively. And I think it's what adds to a movie being this long is instead of us just getting the pieces we need when we need it and then building off of it, you've decided to throw everything at us at once and then now that we know that these exist in the universe, now we're going to give you context to what they mean later. And I just, I think it's, again, very weird. And I think it's what adds to the length of the movie. Yeah. And then you have like the Ariana Grande Kid Cudi subplot. Yeah. That's another example of the pieces on the table before you know why, because they're talking about riley bina's breakup in an early scene where we don't even know who that is yet mm -hmm. and it's like i think mckay might view that as hey I'm, I'm setting stuff up for later it makes this movie more compelling it's not a key plot point so it just feels superfluous and again that's how you get a two hour and 34 minute movie also that you can set up an ariana grande sing-along towards the end of the movie well, and it's funny because it also goes against to me with the narrative of the movie or the the point of the movie is supposed to be is like we get so caught up in the celebrity gossip that we don't actually look at what's important. But then you start us off. We have no context to the character, but yet we're supposed to care about them. I'm like, well, if we care about them the way you've presented it, then it's backwards to what you're trying to tell us not to do, like that we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I mean, I you nailed it at the beginning. Just there's too much fat on this movie. Any chance of it being a great movie is lost because it's so scattershot because it wants to sideswipe anything and everything. And I wonder if that's going to be an issue with like Netflix or streaming movies going forward, period. Because I feel like because you had theatrical releases, there had to be, and I don't know this for sure, but there had to be some kind of agreement where theaters didn't want you creating a two and a half hour, three long, hour long movie. Because that means that's those movies are going to have longer run times, and that's fewer movies you can get into a theater for the day, fewer seats you can sell, right? But if you're starting to do stuff for all of the, the streaming stuff, time doesn't matter anymore. So there's no constraint to how long you can make a movie. And, you know, to pull a Spider-Man quote from this trilogy, like, you know, great power comes great responsibility. Just because you can make a two and a half hour long movie doesn't mean you should. Yeah, 100%. And I think Netflix is notorious for kind of just giving carte blanche, especially if it's a respected director. And nine times out of ten, I think that's only hurt the Netflix product. Like, well, to this day, I don't think I've finished The Irishman. Yeah, and I think that goes back to, again, what, the, what they're trying to get to the metrics. A theater metric is we want to get as many seats sold in a day as possible. So shorter movies that people enjoy, get them in, get them out, right? Whereas Netflix's metric is probably how many minutes of media was consumed. So if you can get somebody locked into a two and a half hour movie when it only needs to be in an hour and a half, that's an extra hour of viewing time you can show to the stakeholders, right? Even if it's like one of those like, 
okay, I'm, I'm dragging on. I, I don't want to watch this movie anymore, but I might, like, you, you, good for you for not finishing The Irishman because you just didn't enjoy it, but, like, a lot of people will just sit through it, or they'll leave it running, and then they'll go do other things rather than turning it off. So, I think, again, this is probably a better conversation for the wrap-up, but it is very interesting to me. You continue to get these very long movies that go straight to streaming, or, you know, this, the, the Snyder Cut, of the Justice League, where it added, what, I think an hour to that movie, and that movie was already too long. Yeah, and I can tell you, I haven't seen the Snyder Cut either. I have, and it didn't add anything to that movie. <laughs> but hey, to your point, it was content for HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Minutes watched, baby, minutes watched. So if that rounds it out here for five points, I think we can jump into some chop shop. Yes, sir. I'm ready. Alrighty, so I have a confession to make to our beautiful audience, Travis, and even to you. This week I have been battling COVID. So my chop shop is a little light. This has been a weird trilogy. I feel like between Christmas, having a child, and getting COVID, uh, this was a very traumatic uh, chop shop or trilogy for me. (laughs) Um, So all of mine were a a little skimpy, but I figure I just wanted to throw that out there. It's going to be a little light. A little bit of a skeleton. Maybe you can help me put some some meat on these bones. But uh, enough of the teasing. I got family friendly this week. I believe you got blockbuster. Blockbuster. All right. Who do you want to start? And, well, let me just say, not only have you gone through having a child, getting COVID, it's the holidays. You also, the Wheel of Destiny did you no favors this week, sir, by giving you family-friendly about a a movie concerning the end of the world. Uh, (laughs) Yes, yeah, no, I was, yeah, I've been put through the ringer here. Yeah, so um, I'll let you lead it off. All right, my family-friendly chop shop. I think I channeled a little bit of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And when I say that, I mean the trailer for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs because I've never actually seen the movie. Um, Maybe a touch of the Mitchells versus the Machines, which I watched super drunk. So I only remember bits and pieces of that movie. Uh, And then just, I think in general, the family-friendly genre, you know? Um, So we open up with Dr. Randall Mindy working with his students along with his son, Connor. So a a big thing you're going to find here is that I, you know, we were introduced to Mindy's family. I decided that one of his sons, his oldest son, should be brought along for this ride. All right. Because family friendly, you know. So Connor idolizes his father, but definitely feels a little bit second rate to Randall's protege, Kate. Right. Kate and Connor are going to be around the same age. Maybe Kate's a little bit older. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like... Connor feels like he's in the shadow because of how wonderful and great Kate is, uh, and his father just admires her so much for everything that uh, she's done. So, movie opens very similarly. The team is going to be looking over research. Instead of it being Kate by herself, all of them will be together. Um, 
And right as they're looking through it, all of a sudden, the camera's going to pan, and Connor is going to get, like, your super excited look on his face, and he's realized something. And he goes to make an announcement to everybody that he's found something. And right as he's about to say something, Kate is going to jump out of her seat. She's going to shout in amazement, and she's going to say that she has discovered a new comet, and the group is going to rejoice. Randall's going to begin to show the equation to plot the trajectory of the uh, the comet. You know, enamored... Connor is going to be jotting down notes as to how to do this, right? How, how you do the trajectory. Um, and that's when it's going to be revealed that the comet is actually on a collision course with Earth. Meanwhile, we can see Connor still holding the papers to whatever he was excited about, whatever he wanted to, to tell the group. So Randall, Connor, and Katie contact the U.S. government to explain the situation and are given an audience with the president. While traveling to the White House, Randall and Kate start, or, um, start to play into each other's anxieties and the two begin to panic. Connor tries to cheer up Kate, planting the seeds that Connor has feelings for Kate, right? After talking with her, uh, Connor tries to cheer up his dad by showing him what it is that he had discovered in the lab earlier. But Randall basically tells Connor that he's sure that it's great, like, but there's more important things right now he can show him later. Right now, he's got to be prepared to talk to the president. Connor gets upset and yells at his dad driving a wedge between them you know basically that classic thing like you never listen to me all you do is care about kate and your your job like you know why can't you see me type situation when the group lands in washington they're greeted by the president and several of this the scientists the group review the data and the white house decides that they need to sit on the information for a little bit and decide what to do not so much of just like the politics side of this, because again, family friendly, we got to tone a lot of that back. But just, you know, they decide they need to, to review it. Randall and Kate say they don't have time. It'll be too late. Uh, and ultimately, the group decides that they're going to leak the information, right? One of the other scientists. This is where I'm definitely going to need your help because I have the ending, but the, the meat in here is where we're going to get a little scarce. So... Ultimately, what we're going to have to wind up doing is it's going to be leaked to the media. We're going to have, you know, the scenes of the public finding out and kind of panicking. The government's going to have to come up with their plan as to how they're going to, to, to tackle the whole thing. Meanwhile, we have another scene where they're talking through basically all of the nuclear missiles or the bombs are going to shoot to the comet. And once again, Connor is going to try and like voice an opinion or something like that. And his dad is going to shoot him down one more time. Going to cause friction there. Connor's going to have to go off to the side. This is when Kate is going to come to, you know, kind of help him, right? You know, check on him. The two will talk about each other. You know, family friendly, we're probably not going to have a kiss type thing, but maybe this is where they realize that they have some feelings for each other and we'll get a, a classic hand-holding moment or something like that. Ultimately, we get to the point where they're going to shoot off the, the missiles and stuff like that. Missiles get shot off and you know, they wind up missing the comet or there's a malfunction. They don't fire whatever winds up happening. Ultimately, the the government's job, they wind up failing it and not doing it. Everybody decides that the world is going to end. Maybe we're going to go a little Toy Story 3 here where it gets a little emotional. We're going to come back to the ending that we like so much where we're going to have the family holding hands at a dinner together. You know, Kate and Connor will be holding hands and all that. Uh, they'll be eating. Maybe we're going to do a picnic outside so they can see the sky. So they're going to see the comet. It's not going to be nearly as close as it was in this movie because we're going to see the comet and it's going to be coming towards... We're going to have that classic shot of space, the comet. You can see Earth in the distance coming towards it. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, well, I guess this is it. 
And right as they, they kind of close their eyes, you're going to see another comet come off from all the screen, hit the original one and knock it off course. And Earth doesn't get hit. And everybody's going to be rejoicing and all that. Everyone's like, what happened? What? I, I don't understand. I don't understand. And Connor's oh. going to come back and say, Dad, I was trying to tell you, I also found a comet. So the whole time Connor knew there was a second comet that was, there was also in a similar trajectory, he had done the equation that his dad, dad used to figure out the com- the first one was going to hit Earth and realized it was going to hit the two comets were going to collide and Earth was going to be fine. So the the movie doesn't end. We don't lose the message of science is wrong and stupid, but it basically it's going to come back to if you're focusing too much on the thing right in front of you, you can kind of lose some of the stuff that's going on around you. So basically the second comet and Connor wind up being a metaphor for one another and Randall's focus on his job and Kate wind up you know and then we have the whole heartfelt thing at the end where like son i'm so sorry i should have listened to you from the beginning type situation because again the whole world is only focused on the one comet that no one goes and looks at the broader picture and says like oh wait there's a second one there's there's something else out there (laughs) i first of all i knew you were not gonna let the world end i guess by definition it's hard to do family friendly if it ends (laughs) yeah so uh, but yeah, that's but, hold on, hold on, hold uh-huh. on. Doesn't this kind of make Connor a bit of a sociopath? He doesn't tell anybody. He's trying to because it, it, again, it's his dad, and like that's there's this scene where they're they're in the war room planning how they're going to blow it up, and once again, Connor tries to tell everybody, but wait, there's like a second comet, and everyone shoots him down again. So that's what that whole scene was about. Was again, Connor tried to tell everyone something again, and everyone shoots him down. I mean, I hope this doesn't ruin your family-friendly vibe, Brett, but have you seen uh, The Mist? Yes. <laughs> I'm just imagining the scenario of, you know, the, the family that's together, and they're like, you know what? I don't want to see what happens when this comet hits Earth, and they, they all drink some poison Kool-Aid and die together. Except for, like, one family member, like, throws up the poison, and then, like, they find out, like, oh, yeah, there was another comet headed in that, that <laughs> saved the day. And they're like, oh, well, I'm glad my whole family's dead. <laughs> All because Connor knew. Connor knew the whole time. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, at first I thought about just having the meteor, like, burn up in the atmosphere and, like, the little rock, like, basically fall at Randall's feet or something like that. But I'm like... Yeah, but that takes away from, like, then it makes science look stupid. Like, science didn't yeah. understand what was going on. So, I'm like, it has to be something where, like, the world doesn't end, but they were still right that the comet was going to blow us up. So, to me, the best way was to try and have a second comet that no one noticed. And then that kind of gave way to the idea of, oh, this is this is a good, like, dad doesn't notice me movie. No, that's effective. That was, uh... I mean, I know you were playing Hurt. This was your uh, your flu game, but I thought you brought it as always. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So, Blockbuster. Let me hear it. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so, fun fact this week. Uh, my wife might have been trying to put my daughter to bed for nap time uh, at the exact same time Travis started his chop shop this week. So I apologize in advance. You're going to hear a lot of a, of a three-year-old talking in the background. And at a, a certain point, um, little peek behind the curtain in the Mosher household, 
Uh, part of Charlie's nap time routine is that she comes and pretends to sleep in my office chair for 10 seconds, so at a certain point she might have actually commandeered the space in which I record. Um, perhaps a little poor timing, uh, poor planning on my part this week, I'm not sure. Again, uh, it's been a really weird trilogy. I apologize. Um, hopefully it doesn't distract too much from, from Travis's chop shop, but, uh, just giving you a little fair warning. You're, you're definitely going to hear a three-year-old in the background for, for a solid chunk of this, but enjoy. Uh, so my blockbuster, uh, I went with uh, pretty low hanging fruit. Um, Michael Bay's Armageddon, which I feel like this movie parodies in its own right. And then uh, the works of Tom Clancy as a whole. All right. Espionage, et cetera. Um, I want to make this a little bit more of a global story. Because uh, I feel like if a comet was about to impact Earth, it would be a lot more than just what the United States wants to do. Um, I believe this movie talks about a joint effort that several other countries are going to try to undertake and the rocket explodes. Do you recall that scene? It's very brief. Yeah. They put like Russia, Germany, India, and I think like one other group or something like that. I can't remember who it is like, yeah. And and it fails. Yeah. I I didn't know if they were going for the implication that there was some level of U S sabotage on that, or if it just failed. Did you get any sense? I think the level of sabotage is just the lack of uh, cooperation. Like, yeah, fair, I, fair. Just yeah, the the fact that the U.S. has the power to do all of this, but they're choosing not to. So again, a more global flavor to my blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to give you a little bit of the setup, we're gonna have the actress Gong Li. Uh, she's gonna work for the uh, MSS, which is the Ministry of State Security, which is basically China's version of the CIA. Okay. Um, Russia's going to be involved. And uh, Russia's going to have a special envoy to the United States um, that works in conjunction with, uh, you know, the president. And little known fact, Brad, this is true. You can look this up. Steven Seagal is a Russian citizen. And he is Russia's special envoy to the United States. So Steven Seagal will be uh, who at first is going to be portrayed as Russia and the United States working together. But secretly, Steven Seagal is a spy for Russia and he's going to be betraying the U.S.'s secrets. Um, And then I wanted to have a CIA representative, of course, because ultimately this is still an American movie. So we're going to reunite from the departed Leo DiCaprio and Mark Wahlberg. Um, so those are the additional characters to my story. Um, so much like in this movie, uh, Dr. Mindy is going to be working under President Orlean with a, a plan. And they're working with Special Envoy Seagal from Russia. Um, and then, of course, uh, Isherwell is still going to be involved. Um, but the U.S. and Russia are planning to do a joint mission where they each launch their own ship. Uh, where there's a, a failsafe if one goes wrong. So like you said, the real betrayal was the lack of cooperation. They're, they're trying to rectify this, at least on the surface. 
meanwhile, Kate and Teddy, just like in this movie, they're kind of sickened by Dr. Mindy's, uh, you know, falling in love with celebrity. Um, so they're kind of doing their own thing, much like in the movie, but they're going to be approached by Gong Li. And China agrees that the comet, it has to be deflected. Because the U.S. and Russia, they're still working on the plan to blow it up for the purposes of, like, farming it. Um, so Gong Li basically asked Teddy and Kate to help China and, and help the Earth uh, to prepare a Chinese mission to stop this. Um, so fast forward a little bit. Dr. Mindy is going to find out that Mark Wahlberg is going to lead a CIA covert mission to take over a military installment close enough to the Russian launch site to shoot down the Russian ship. Um, and President Orlean intends to frame Eastern European extremists who welcome Armageddon when in reality it's to ensure that the USA has sole control of the comet because they don't know about the Chinese mission. Uh, Dr. Mindy's, that's going to be a bridge too far. He's going to finally realize you have no interest in protecting Earth. It's just all about profit. You're literally going to reduce the, the success rate of the mission by 50% by eliminating the Russians. Uh, meanwhile, though, as I mentioned, Steven Seagal is secretly funneling info back to Russia with the help of Jason Orlean, played by Jonah Hill, uh, about the USA mission and Wahlberg's plans. Uh, meanwhile, Kate and Teddy share all their data with Chinese leadership. Uh, we'll have a scene of them talking strategy, uh, and it's going to get interrupted by Gong Li, who informs Chinese leadership that their uh, specially contracted advisor has arrived. Any guesses on who that advisor is going to be, Brett? It's going to be Elon Musk. And Elon Musk convinces Chinese leadership to alter their plans as well to try to har harvest the comet. Uh, again, Kate and Teddy are appalled. They're like, what the fuck? This is the same thing the United States doing. Gong Li doesn't agree with Chinese government, so she helps smuggle them out of China and back into America ahead of the launch. Um, so most of this thus far has been kind of Tom Clancy set up, but I wanted one action set piece because after all, this is a blockbuster. So we've got all the, the setup of these missions. And because it's a blockbuster, of course, all three launches are going to happen on the same day, you know, even though they're spread across the globe. And at the White House, President Orlean and staff monitor their pending launch, along with the simultaneous CIA mission led by Wahlberg. Uh, we'll cut back and forth between Mark Wahlberg's team taking over the military installation. It's going to be shot in that very Michael Bay, fast cut fashion, you know, machine gun fire, et cetera. And that's going to be intercut with Ron Perlman leading the USA rocket launch. We didn't mention Ron Perlman. How'd you think he did in the movie? Uh, I mean, he played the character he was supposed to play perfectly. I, uh, <laughs> it's one of those where you, you, you realize how old he is. It's, and he's, he's, I think, he's ending, or getting close to the end of his career. I would love to see him and uh, Seagal battle. I think they would be perfect if they got into a hand-to-hand -hand oh, combat in this. Damn it, Brett. <laughs> um, yeah, I did enjoy him yelling at the kids on the White House lawn. I, I did laugh at that scene a little bit. Yep. 
Anyway, uh, Wahlberg's team will be close to successfully taking over the Russian installation when uh, Steven Seagal will show up springing in an ambush. Uh, so you're not going to get uh, Ron Perlman versus Steven Seagal, but you are going to get Mark Wahlberg versus Steven Seagal. Uh, Seagal's going to monologue a little bit because, of course, uh, and all of this is going to be live streamed because the, the the CIA team, they've got the little cameras on, little body cam, so President Orlean can see. Um, Wahlberg's team will be executed. Uh, Wahlberg will have like a hand-to-hand -hand against Steven Seagal, which ultimately he loses. And uh, President Orlean is despondent. Uh, at the, the mission's failure, and she's looking for her son Jason for comfort, but he's nowhere to be found. Uh, before President Orlean can give it a, a further thought, the final countdown for both the U.S. and Russian launch commence. Uh, as previously established, Jason is working with the Russians and has sabotaged the U.S. launch. Uh, the U.S. rocket explodes moments after takeoff, which will be intercut with the Russian launch taking off successfully. Uh, the Russian command center will be in celebration as Putin gives Jason a handshake, uh, thanking him for his help and congratulating him on the riches that await him. Uh, Putin calls for an aide to take Jason to get his payment. Uh, meanwhile, Kate and Teddy uh, join Dr. Mindy and his family for dinner, much much like the film, to, to watch the launches. Uh, the Russian ship makes contact with the comet first and uh, begins the process of implanting a, a bomb to blow it up. Uh, then we're going to cut back to Jason in a Russian penthouse surrounded by hookers and cocaine. Uh, he snorts a line and calls for a hooker to give him a lap dance. And uh, Jason is so distracted by the dance, he fails to notice the large Russian man behind him who strangles Jason with a piano wire, uh, eliminating Jason as a tie to the sabotage. Uh, we're going to cut back to the Russian ship implanting the bombs, and it's going to be interrupted by Elon Musk himself arriving in the Chinese spaceship. And uh, basically, Musk is going to fight the Russian ship for basically who's going to actually blow up the comet, uh, leading to both of them not being able to implant their bombs deep enough to do the job. Uh, but ultimately, they're going to have like a Transformers-like battle. And they're accidentally going to blow each other up, which then blows the comet up enough to not end the world. So like you, Brad, I just I couldn't end the world. I like how ridiculous it got there at the end, because I'm, I'm even picturing at first I thought you were just going to have one of them shove the other ship into the asteroid. Um not they weren't gonna have to sacrifice themselves, but basically they were gonna like cause the trajectory of the opponent to go into it and blow it up. I like them fighting each other, and I like that the the comet winds up just splitting in half and basically splits the difference and misses Earth. <laughs> it goes separate ways. Yeah, I thought it would be interesting that if by the end of it, it's just Elon Musk's ego not allowing another, you know person slash company to save the day and he uses all his technology to fight the other bot and then accidentally saves the planet i uh i honestly for a second didn't think you were going to have musk with china i thought he was going to do his own thing and then maybe even to the point where his objective was to knock the the comet off course and then plant his own society on the comet because it getting closer than mars meant that he could just implant 
the comet and have a mobile, like, you know, human satellite station, whatever you wanted to call. Ooh. Once again, Brett, you, you, you take a good idea and just put, slap a turbocharger on it. So then he uh, then then Musk just rides that asteroid and then you can have a post credit scene where maybe he realizes being on an asteroid isn't the or a comet isn't the best <laughs> the best idea. Yeah, or you could have, uh, you know, a, a mid credit scene 2000 years in the future where Elon Musk crash lands onto a planet via an asteroid. <laughs> or or a in credit scene where he becomes the evil, you know, uh, supervillain that he is. And now he has he, he manages to put thrusters and brings the comet back to Earth as a death comet <laughs> and, and basically holds Earth hostage. Uh, don't don't give him any ideas. Let's cut that, please. <laughs> uh, it'd be called a musket. <laughs> You're good for at least one a show, Brett. You hit the quota. Oh, <laughs> uh, I I like like I said the the end. I like how it became a ridiculous blockbuster by the end of it. Yeah, because I mean, if this were to really happen. I imagine, you know, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, all trying to fight over who gets to be the one who saves the day. That's what I thought this movie missed. Like, there, there'd be another tech billionaire out there trying to do something as well. I just wonder when they were writing it. Was it, you know, had you... We hadn't gotten to the maximum of, what was it, Virgin, Amazon, and was it SpaceX, all of their... The only reason I didn't use that is it Richard Brant, Richard, uh, who's Branson, Branson? I think Branson, yeah, Richard Branson, the three of those assholes, you know, taking their their rocket ships to the edge of space type stuff. Like to your point, yeah, I think had that stuff been making headlines as this was being written, I think you would have had a lot more of the competition between the three of them, as opposed to just yeah, that's one. Fair. But you fixed that. Yeah, and I don't think we mentioned it's amazing to think that this movie was conceived before COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Apparently, Jennifer Lawrence had, like, a, a broken tooth through the majority of the filming, but couldn't get it fixed because of COVID. So in post, they went in and, like, fixed her tooth, which to me is Oh, no shit. Crazy. Especially because that her character, I feel like having a broken tooth probably would have added to it. Yeah, I'm thinking back to uh, Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. So, don't even know which tooth was broken, but yeah, apparently that was an issue. So, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. That was like, I, I very much enjoyed that. Uh, that I appreciate it. Shop. So, we have no blue book this week because even though this movie was in theaters for a little bit, it tends to really skew the stuff. So, we'll just jump into a little bit of tag and title if you're ready. Yes, sir. Alrighty, Travis, I'm going to give you three taglines. One tagline is the tagline to this movie. One tagline is to a movie I found adjacent. And one tagline was created by yours truly. What I need you to do, Travis, is tell me what tagline belongs to 2021's Don't Look Up. Your taglines are as follows. Objects in space may be closer than they appear. Based on truly possible events... And the end of the world was just the beginning. 
it's not the end of the world. It's just the beginning. I think that's going to be an adjacent title. Okay. Uh, objects in space may be closer than they appear. I'm going to say that's the official tagline. And then what was the middle tag? Based on truly possible events. No, ne never mind. Let me flip it. That that screams Adam McKay. That's the actual tagline. The first one is the best, so I think you made it up. Alrighty, final answers. Locking it in. Locking it in. All right, you're true. You're right. You got 100% this week, sir. Oh. Based on truly possible events is the actual tagline for the movie. The end of the world was just the beginning. Is 2004's The Day After Tomorrow. And mm. objects in space may be closer than they appear was my tagline. Uh, again, Brad, I... You're missing your calling. <laughs> All right, so I think we got two more segments here. Uh, we have our special edition for the Christmas Come Early trilogy, our Christmas present trilogy, or our Christmas present segment. Do you want to do that one? And then we'll jump into some time capsule. Uh, yeah, I'm down for some uh, special edition Christmas gifts. Uh, do you want me to go first with mine? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Let's see. What, what is your if you were to to define this movie? As a Christmas gift, you know, maybe a loved one, maybe someone, a secret Santa, I don't know, hands you a box, beautifully wrapped, bow on top. You're going to tear that thing open. What's inside it? Uh, it's a fucking gym membership. <laughs> and here's my reason why. <laughs> wait, wait, how many months? One month, three months, full year? What are we talking about? Ooh. For the purpose of my argument... Actually, you know what? One month. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, if you get somebody a gym membership for Christmas, to me, it's one of those things where unless they've been dropping hints that they've wanted it, the person who's actually going to go to the gym doesn't need to get it as a Christmas gift because they're already going to go. They already care about fitness. This, to me, is getting a one-month gym membership to your 350-pound overweight cousin. Uh, because you can preach at them, you know, physical fitness, physical fitness, physical fitness. You know, you got to stay active. Here, let me get you this membership. I don't think you're ever going to make the 350-pound cousin receptive to uh, getting in shape. And... I like the question of, is it a one month? Is it a six month? Is it a year? I think it's a year because it adds an extra layer of, of you're missing the whole fucking point. If you're going to try to force fitness or a, a point of view on somebody, go ahead and spring for the 12 month membership because all that's going to happen with a one month is going to be like, I was never going to go anyway. And now you're telling me if I go and start to enjoy it, after 30 days, I'm going to have to start paying for this shit myself. It's just never going to happen. And I think that's the uh, climate change in this case is a gym membership. You, you either care about it or you don't, but somebody else telling you that you should is never going to work, especially when it's uh, as heavy handed as this and as heavy handed as a one month gym membership would be, you know, given the, the fat guy in front of the whole family. 
Oh, beautiful. I even like the one month because it's like, it's just enough to like kind of try everything out, but it doesn't commit to anything just like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful, sir. Oh, I, I, I have to admit, I'm going to miss this segment. We might have to try and bring something like this back into a future trilogy because this has been a fun one because these... <laughs> Please get ridiculous. Yeah, agreed. This was a, a beautiful touch. Alrighty, for mine, my Christmas gift would be my I went reverse. Mine wasn't getting something, it was giving something. And this movie to me was essentially buying jewelry from an Etsy store and then afterward realizing it's actually coming from a shop in China. Okay. And my thought process is it comes from a reputable place. You know, Netflix has some great movies. It has some Bobo stuff, but you, you, you know, Netflix, right? So that's your Etsy shop it can be hit or miss. The pictures, AKA trailer can make it look fantastic, right? Everything about it looked right when you purchased it. All of a sudden it's taking a little bit longer than expected to get here. Cause you didn't realize it has to come from overseas. So that's kind of the delays that happened, them releasing in theaters first. And then ultimately, it's not going to be the quality you're expecting, right? You have some huge names, some quality people. You're thinking handmade by true artisans, right? But really what you end up getting is something that's maybe just Bobo that's been, you know, sprayed down or, or plated, right? So it winds up being just kind of a generic Bobo product, as opposed to what you truly thought you were getting. Yeah, no, I, I a hundred percent. And I think we've all been there. I've, I've opened, uh, you know, a shirt that, you know, I read the sizing chart on and Excel will fit me perfectly. And I open it up and it's a fucking parachute because yeah, I got, uh, you know, I ordered it off the wish app. Yep. So yeah, that was to me, that's, this movie just, it had everything that it needed to be fantastic, but when you finally got it, it was just acceptable at best. You're like, I guess I have it here and I'll, I'll give it to somebody, but I, this is not what I would have gotten had I, had I known what it was. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's an apt comparison. So with that, let's jump into Time Capsule. Absolutely. So this time capsule is going to be Adam McKay uh, because I want to talk about his involvement in this movie specifically and why it didn't really work as well as I think either of us had hoped. Um, as you mentioned, McKay really got famous for probably Anchorman, I would say, was his first big breakthrough movie. Mm -hmm. uh, he also did Talladega Nights, uh, Step Brothers. And the other guys, um, the other guys are probably my least favorite of those, but I still like it quite a bit. Aim for the bushes. Uh, but you'll notice another common thread in, the, in those movies besides Adam McKay is Will Ferrell. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked on one of the wrap ups about their their breakup. It was kind of in the news cycle before the release of this movie. I think Adam McKay can't he wants to be a quote-unquote serious director but i don't know if he just doesn't have the chops for it or just is too afraid to completely abandon the the anchorman style comedy 
because I think he still kind of tries to throw it in here a lot, but then also make a, a capital S serious movie. I, and I think he's just straddling the fence. I think he either needs to mend fences with Farrell and go back to because I mean, Talladega Nights is very much a movie about the ugly American. Um, but you kind of Trojan horse it into a, a funny movie about car racing. Kind of like when you're giving your dog medicine and you kind of pack it into like a piece of bread or something. It feels like Will Ferrell was the piece of bread and Adam McKay was the medicine. And now it's just the medicine. Does that make sense? Yeah, and what I think is interesting is I I don't know if he's in a transition period between what he's creating because to your point, Talladega Nights, Anchorman, that's those are classics of his. And then you get into the other guys, but then you have The Big Short, which I love The Big Short, and it's very smartly written, especially with a very complex subject matter such as shorting the stock market. And then it feels like Don't Look Up is where he's kind of trying to teeter back towards I, I don't know like it's this weird thing where he's trying to abandon some of the stuff that I guess you could say he was good at or maybe it was that Will Ferrell kind of brought that the the actual comedy that he needed whereas I don't consider the big short a comedy much like I don't think I would consider don't look up but don't look up was pitched as a comedy yeah and you're leaving out the movie in between which was uh vice mm-hmm. and I think that's very much not a comedy Um, so yeah, it feels like he's trying to make a movie with the importance level of the big short, but also kind of skew towards Anchorman style comedy. And it's not particularly great at either one of those things, which makes for a very uneven, mediocre movie, in my opinion. Yeah. And you wonder if that is kind of the yin and yang that he had with Farrell was Adam McKay brought the, I guess, seriousness or the narrative side of it. And Farrell was able to turn what he had. He was able to chop what he had into comedies and it made it successful. And without that, he's now trying to prove that, you know, ultimately he can do the comedy side of it, but he doesn't have his yin, right? Because, yeah, I'm just uh, you you look at his his uh, discography, whoops, uh, his filmography here. And yeah, Anchorman, uh, Talladega Nights, uh, the producers probably was our no, that's the procedure. Sorry. Uh, Step Brothers. I mean, he has it's Eastbound and Down. He did uh, something in that. The other is like he has some classic comedy stuff in here, but all of those he had, like to your point, Will Ferrell to basically balance that out. And I tried to do a deep dive to see what changed. And best I can tell, I found two different kind of tidbits on why he has changed his filmmaking approach. Apparently, he was very um, disenfranchised by the the 2008 stuff. The the uh, obviously he showed that in the Big Short, and you know Wall Street being bailed out. Because even before he transitioned away from comedy. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the other guys, but the last act of that movie is kind of a Wall Street is terrible and is stealing from everybody kind of out of nowhere. I don't know if you recall that. Uh, No, I only remember the first half of the other guys. (laughs) Yeah, which I mean, there might be a reason for that because again, by the end, he's getting a little bit preachy. Um, And then the other thing I heard was 
you know, after Donald Trump, he didn't feel comfortable putting characters like Ron Burgundy and Ricky Bobby on screen because what was meant to kind of be poking fun at those people now has kind of been glorified by society. So he kind of felt a level of guilt for putting those kind of characters on screen. So it sounds like he's definitely which become is a more completely of an stupid activist. reason to me. Yeah, he's he's been, definitely become more of an activist, which is unfortunate because it's hard to to talk to people when you're talking down from your high horse, you know. Yeah, and and I guess my other problem on a meta level is, you mentioned the Big Short is a very complex idea, like shorting the stock market. The the lay person is not going to know much about that, and I include myself in that category. So the kind of talk down to you approach that McKay takes, and it's very much there in the big short, in my opinion, like here's Margot Robbie in a bathtub to explain stuff to you because you're too stupid. Mm -hmm. But in that particular case, I needed the explanation. When it comes to like Vice, like, hey, I know Dick Cheney was a bad dude and he did a lot of bad shit. It's not news to me. And like, hey – I'm aware of global warming. I'm aware of climate change. I would very much like it not to happen. What would you like me to do about it, Adam McKay? Mm -hmm. Because just talking down to me for two and a half hours, I'm just like it ruins any comedy that this movie might effectively pull off. And maybe that's why they basically disguise this as a comet disaster movie is because he doesn't have an answer for any of that. It's like, well, we just won't address the solution because – ultimately we're all doomed and that was the other part why again i thought this was weird that the whole movie wasn't a comet that they decided to do that because i'm like to your point there there's no way to fix it right your your analogy is that global warming is a comet hurling towards us and we're fucked like there's nothing we can do it's too late you know we've we've passed the deadline and now we just have to embrace destruction yeah and you know the thing is i think adam mckay thinks it's extremely important to make this movie and again, to kind of circle back to what I said at the beginning, you're, you're making this movie and paying Leo $30 million so he can keep flying on his private jet more. But on this scale, with the amount of money he gets paid, this is kind of the same thing, Brett, as you recycling at your house. You're doing your part. Adam McKay thinks he's doing his part. I think Adam McKay believes that his part is more important because he can film a movie with big stars, but ultimately – He's not doing much more on his scale than you recycling weekly. Well, so the the level of self importance to me is is a real turnoff. Like I, I'm glad that you made the movie; your heart's in the right place. But ultimately, you're not doing anything more than I'm doing anything to stop climate change. Well, and not only that, but it kind of goes back to the whole, you know, trying to profit off of the the crisis. And like, are you going to take all of the the gross profits of this movie and dedicate it towards climate change or anything like that? Because if not, you're almost as bad as the tech company who wants to exploit the comet. You're just a filmmaker exploiting it to make money. Like, what are you going to do with your profits? To me, is a, as at the end of the day, right? Because this movie, it was made to make money, right? And you're, the subject matter is supposed to be global warming or your, your disaster movie. So are, are you not as guilty because you're trying to make money off of it? Yeah, and ultimately, you know the subject matter is 
at least on the surface, deeply important to Leonardo DiCaprio. So like, that's a surefire way to get him on board. But again, Leo cares so much. Did he do this one for scale? No, he, he made 30 million fucking dollars. Mm-hmm. So unless he's given 10 million of that to climate change again, what are you actually doing other than just yeah, it is. making a movie to show how stupid some people are and how much you care? I didn't even think about that when we were talking about whack-a-mole that they took shots at governments, the tech industry, the news industry, scientists. They didn't take a single shot at Hollywood though, did they? Uh, they actually did with the Chris Evans stuff with the what? The Chris Evans cameo. Oh, okay. You're right. You're right. They did. They did get it in there at the end. All right. I'll give you that. They did. They did get one, one shot in there. I guess that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, they they probably did exactly for that reason. They were like, wait, we haven't made fun of ourselves in all of this. We can't leave that that door open for people to savage us <laughs> on Twitter. So they're like, let's get Chris Evans, which yeah. I mean, I laughed at that. I, I thought that was good. Yeah, yeah. What did, I think I, I read somewhere where they said that Chris Evans has taken the cameo, uh, the king of cameo title away. Who did it belong to before? Matt Damon? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a delight. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm interested. Uh, McKay's doing his next movie is apparently on a um, a startup that was fraudulently claiming a bunch of scientific, you know, uh, breakthroughs that they didn't actually do. So again, he's very much sticking with activism. Yeah, activism. So I. I'm wondering if he's going to start becoming just a director that I'm like, I'm just going to avoid your work. Oh, bad blood. Yeah, this is, I know exactly, I forget what the company was, like Helios or something like, I think it begins with an H, but yeah. I know. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the problem, is he made the big short, and the big short was critically acclaimed. I legitimately do really enjoy that movie. And now that's going to be, that's his new thing. He's, he's Imlot Shyamalan on himself. Instead of being the twist guy, he's going to be the, the comedy activist guy. Well, just activist guy. Unfortunately, the comedy's not really working. Right. Yeah. No, he's going to try to make lighter fare out of very important topics to educate us idiots out here. Wait, he's good. They're making a Hansel and Gretel too. What? It's been announced. I mean, if they bring back the original cast, I'd get to see that. I mean, that's shitty popcorn movie, but that's funny that that's actually they're they're doing a, a Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters too. He's the producer, so. Oh, okay. I was like, what does this have to do with Adam McKay? Yeah, is that the one with Jeremy Renner? Yeah. Uh, okay. Again, can't believe that's getting a sequel. What, ten, fifteen years later? Yeah, but what is it in? Pre-production? Yeah, probably. 2013. Yeah. yeah. That movie's almost 10 years old. Oh, Brett, I'll eat my head on this podcast if that sequel actually happens. <laughs> if it gets off the ground? Yeah, that, I, that's one of those. I think that gets announced and then nothing ever happens. Yeah, because, I mean, at least unless Jeremy Renner wants to do it, I mean, why would he go back and do that? He's still making that Marvel money. I mean, is he still, though? He just did a miniseries. He just did the Hawkeye series well, right, for Disney+. Wasn't Plus. that to find his replacement, or is he still going to be in the MCU? The way that that ends, he is not done. 
Okay. All right. So uh, it might be to transition him off or make him more of a cameo role, almost like what they did with the Hulk. But no, they did not like eliminate his character or imply that, you know, he's he's hanging up the bow. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, sir. Well, I think that brings us to final assessment of the movie. And then uh, we'll do some housekeeping and close up. Uh, sounds good. You want to lead us off? Uh, yeah, ultimately, I thought this movie was a flop. Uh, I don't know if it is because I was, you know, tainted by the trailer and I was coming into this expecting, you know, maybe a sharper version of Anchorman. But uh, I was left fairly disappointed. I thought the movie was way too long, way too much fat. Uh, performances were fantastic. You know, I think that's the shining light is maybe that's why I was able to get through this movie. It's like the people on screen were legitimately enjoyable to watch. I just think this movie didn't go anywhere, didn't do anything. And again, the message at the end, you want to, is it that it's too late to do anything or to get your head out of your ass? Like, I'm not exactly sure where, where this is going. Like, I guess with the big short, at least it was like, acknowledging events that happened even though we're at this point doomed to repeat those it seems like but this just seems like it's you know kind of very bleak and at the end it's like yeah the world ends like there's nothing we can do about it so uh jonah hill his comedy i think was the the shining light there uh but yeah i i would say this is probably a pass for i mean i will never watch this again and if i knew what it was i probably wouldn't have watched it the first time Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. Um, it wasn't a bore to sit through because almost to an actor, the performances are great. Uh, but again, it, it it feels like Hollywood cosplaying a big important issue and, and trying to do a satire that's not funny. Um, if it weren't, like you, I will not rewatch this movie. I may rewatch Leonardo DiCaprio's meltdown where he tells everyone they're going to fucking die. I thought that scene was phenomenal. Uh, the dinner scene, if I really just want to, for whatever reason, feel a massive downer, I would go back and watch <laughs> that because it's a great scene. But there are two that I'll look for on YouTube. I would never, even though I had Netflix, I would not go to the trouble to start this movie to find those scenes. And and that's a real shame because there's so much talent involved. It's an important message, but it's not a good movie. That, that's about all I can say. Yeah. I, I blame a lot of my dismay with this movie on poor marketing. And then, yeah, I just think tonally it didn't quite know what it wanted to do. Again, the, the I bring it back to the opening and ending credits in the mid and post credit scene, like to me, that was the tone of the movie that I was, I was presented with, but that wasn't what was actually delivered. Yeah. And again, the, the downward trend for McKay continues. It, it makes me very concerned about this bad blood movie. Alrighty. With that, just a little bit of housekeeping here. Obviously, this is the end of our trilogy, so we'll be doing a wrap-up show shortly here. You can look out or listen out for that. Uh, we like to kind of rank the movies in our trilogy subjectively, objectively, and then beyond that, our, uh, our infamous character swap. So I look forward to that. But 
our next trilogy is going to be the the meta hollywood trilogy so uh, we're looking at movies that kind of uh they have a subplot or kind of revolve around the entertainment industry as a whole so we've got 2001's Mulholland Drive, 1967's The Producers, and then we kind of have something interesting and new we're going to try this time. Is we, had, we had a four-way tie. We couldn't quite decide of, of four movies what we wanted to end out the trilogy on. So we're going to give it to you, the audience. We're going to get a poll up on the, on the website, cinemechanics.com, by the time the next trilogy starts. And we're looking for you all to help us decide what the third movie in that trilogy is going to be. And it's between Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Get Shorty, Hail Caesar, or The Player. And basically, we'll let that run through the first two movies, and then uh, we'll close out that poll. And uh, whatever the results are is what we'll wind up reviewing for that third one. But uh, definitely look forward to that trilogy, and then uh, we'll see where we go from there. But uh, I think that'll about do it. And Travis, if you, unless you have any other words, you know, this is, this is goodbye, and we, we look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, I just wanted to say, man, I timed this Molly perfectly. Oh, God, why did I, I just lost my train of thought. Derailed. I was going to make something really a good point, but <laughs> give me a second. Uh, I think in the movie, there's the joint effort explodes before it can take off. I, I don't know. This is not related to my chop shop, but did you get the impression that they were trying to imply sabotage? No? You still there, Brett? Hello? Good job. No, you're gonna walk now. Come on. You're gonna walk.